Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now, it's time to rocket back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode, from its black-and-white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons, as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Season 1, Episode 14, Treasure of the Incas, is Superman cosplayer Daniel Sanchez. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm feeling very reporter-like tonight. Yes, you have your glasses, you have your George Reeves-style Superman shirt, we're in glorious black and white. We're good to go here. So, interesting thing about that when I was a kid, we only had a black and white television. So I did not know for the longest time that there were color episodes. So what you're not seeing, dear viewer, is this is the color George Reeves shirt. What I'm now holding up is a brown replica, which was used in the original filming of the black and white episodes for contrast reasons. But you'll see that's that's the difference. Wait, hang on one sec. I'm going for our YouTube audience who's who's watching the video of this. I am going to restore your color for a moment here. There we go. Color. Original Reeves Brown. Very nice. Very cool. No, thank you for sharing that. So for people who follow my other podcast, Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey, you are on fairly recently talking about your experience as a Superman fan, your experience cosplaying as Superman, all the wonderful charity work that you do. We touched on your history with Adventures of Superman. I really encourage people to go check out that episode. It really seemed to resonate with our audience. Uh, very powerful, moving story that you shared with everyone. And I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. So I hope everyone will, will go and take a, take a listen or look at that episode. Uh, in a moment, I, I do want to ask you about your history with the show, but let me just give our, our quick setup here. So again, this is episode 14 of season one. It aired on December 19th, 1952, written by Howard Green, directed by Tommy Carr. And our synopsis from IMDb this time, I've sort of given up on the DVD synopses because I typically find them lacking. So either I make my own or now we'll pull in from IMDb. While Lois is on her way to an auction featuring South American items, a man asks her to purchase an Inca tapestry for him. Soon after, the man is killed, and the tapestry is stolen from Lois. So she, Jimmy, and Clark follow the murderer to Lima to find the tapestry and catch the criminals behind the murder. So that's the one that we're talking about today. A lot to unpack, as always. Before I ask you about your impressions of this episode, talk to me about Adventures of Superman generally. What role did it play in your Superman fandom as a kid? It was my entry point. It was the first little boy, big heart, oh my gosh, I love Superman experience that I had was the George Reeves television show. So this is circa 1972. I'm somewhere around four years old. And the the reason for living during the week is for 3.30 in the afternoon to come and The Adventures of Superman comes on. Uh, this was in Atlanta, and in those days, there was a show probably has been forgotten by everyone called Hazel, all about the adventures of a of a single father trying to do his best with his children. And luckily, he has this wonderful maid who plays the mother figure, and her name was Hazel. And it was absolute night hall for a child. It was just the thing that was in the way. 
before the adventures of Superman. But when that first whoosh sound came on, even before the first note of the music, the the thrill, the blood pumping that would happen when you just hear whoosh, and you knew it was about to start. I I very much can appreciate what it was like for the children listening to the radio show in the 40s because there was nothing like it. And that uh, that was my entry point. From that, I wanted to read the comic books. From that, I wanted to learn everything else that there was to know. But it was uh, it was my first love. And now I know the answer to this, but for the audience of this podcast, what is what is your favorite episode from the George Reeves series? Around the World with Superman, where um, we're doing spoilers, right? Hopefully, because you'll bring me in for that episode and we can deeply go into it. I already but have your a- name down on the Excel <laughs> list for that one. Don't worry. Yes. Um, there, is, there is a girl who suffers from blindness. And many things happen, but uh, she's deemed inoperable. And there comes a point in the episode where Superman realizes that with his precision, he can be the one to cure her blindness with his heat vision. And when her sight is restored, he flies her to see everything, to show her the world, to show her the colors, to show her the butterflies, to show her the sky. And I just had had never before and possibly never since seen a gesture of love for someone simply because they were deserving of it and to care for someone simply because they were alive. And the way that he did this for her made a lifetime indelible impression to me of this, this is who Superman is. So um, the interesting thing is I was, I was, a child watching these episodes is that they were not shown in an order. They were all random. And so I had no sense of, of placement of when or where this episode happened. I just knew that it it was the, um, the pinnacle of, of what Superman's heart was. It really is such a beautiful episode and we're a ways away from that, obviously the end of season two, but I do look forward to eventually getting there and to speaking with you about it further. Actually, a question though. So you're watching these as a kid out of order. You have a black and white TV. So even when you're watching the color episodes, you're watching them in black and white. Mm-hmm. We've talked, we've, we've at least touched on it on the show, how there's definitely a shift as we head into the color seasons in terms of the tone and the storytelling and everything. As a kid, like what did you make of that? Especially if you were bouncing between episodes from different seasons and it was, was it jarring? I would imagine it would be. Well, they kept changing Lois's. In in my in my experience, there was no rhyme or reason when you would have Phyllis Coates or Noel Neal. But keep in mind, the era that I grew up in, they would change Darren's on Bewitched. And they would change Wilbur's on Mr. Ed. So this was just something that as a child you go, okay. You know, we don't understand why. Um I always thought on Bewitched she just one day wanted a better looking husband, so she just changed him. But <laughs> the the uh the, the, I was. I, let me tell you, I'm a Phyllis Coates fan through and through. Um, you know, we all love Noelle Neal. She's absolutely fantastic. But I think Phyllis was Lois Lane. And the uh, I've, I've heard you talk on, on previous episodes about how there's not so much the love story dynamic in these first few seasons, especially with Phyllis Coates. And let me tell you that as a child, that was fine with me. I 
I'm a four and five year old boy. I don't need to see uh, a drawn out complex, you know, subtle dynamic between the two of them in the workplace. And in fact, the way that Phyllis treated him with a little bit of disdain and a lot of competitiveness, and she would make the snide remarks and she'd give him the cold stares, that fit right into the way girls would treat you at school. You know, they were wanting to beat you on the playground. They were wanting to show you that they were better than you, or at least just as good as boys. And so this was a one-to-one lining up with my own experience. So when I saw this happening to Clark Kent, that was reality. That was I totally believed that this is how it is when you grow up also. No, so, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was... Uh, it was, it was just amazing to see the, the different adventures. And, um, you know, I eventually formed opinions about the different characters. Uh, I, I fell out of love with Jimmy Olsen after a while, I think. Because as a child, you want to see the young male character be awesome. And so many times he was just kidnap fodder or he was just there to yell twice as loud as really anyone needed to be talking. And uh, some of his decisions were not great. And, and meanwhile, you know, I'm, I'm reading books like The Hardy Boys, which many of these episodes seem to me to be modeled very much after a Hardy Boys story. You know, the lighthouse episode, the, the caves, there, there were a lot of caves. There were, there were so many caves in these episodes, but it was always, there's a mystery. And then very quickly you solve it. And it may not have been a great mystery, but that's all right. Um, and Jimmy just didn't seem to be as smart as The Hardy Boys or as Encyclopedia Brown or any of my other childhood, you know, adventure heroes. And, you know, he was more in the line of Shaggy to me. So I, I, I didn't watch it for him. I watched it for, for Clark, who was all about the social justice and very much a man who proved that you really can have an effect. Like one man can do something. And Reeves, Clark Kent, especially in the first two seasons, was, uh, was more the hero. No, absolutely. No, it's great to get your, your take on all of that. It's really funny because every time a guest expresses a preference for Phyllis Coates over Noel Neal, everyone always kind of brings it up as, as, as if it's, you know, maybe, you know, again, we all want to be respectful and all of that. And, but sometimes it's brought up as like maybe a little bit of a controversial opinion. Every single guest who has addressed it so far has preferred Phyllis Coates. So I think, you know, I think even for myself going in, it's like, yeah, I don't know where people kind of land on this, but after having conversation after conversation, I think, I, I think for for us Superman fans, obviously, I don't want to I don't want to generalize, but I think that's a pretty a, a pretty shared uh, viewpoint to have. So certainly one that mm-hmm. I share. And I think this was a perfect episode to have you on for because you mentioned you know that competitiveness between Lois and Clark that is on full display in this episode. I would say I think this actually is a is a good showcase for Jack Larson's Jim Olsen uh, this episode. Certainly more so than than you know maybe other ones that you were <laughs> that you were pointing to. And I do also just want to say that. When you when you mentioned you know watching these out of order and and uh, dealing with the changing Loises, so for this child of the '90s, the equivalent for me was watching Saved by the Bell. So in the final season of that show, Tiffany Thiessen and Elizabeth Berkley uh, left, and they decided to do a few more episodes, like half a season's worth of episodes. And so they brought in another actress to play a new character named Tori. And when they aired the episodes, as as memory serves, they alternated them. So one week you would be there with our traditional core cast, including Mm -hmm. Kelly and Jesse. 
And then the next week they would be gone without any explanation. And Tori would be there. It was just back and forth for this, <laughs> for this final season. And, you know, now of course, you know, I understood what was going on behind the scenes, but as a kid, it was, it was like it, it, jarring, maybe too strong a word, but it was definitely, definitely felt out of sorts watching it. So I, I can identify. Yeah. And, and especially a kid with a big imagination, you know, you, 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 you sit around thinking, okay, I missed an episode where they, where the super scientists with the alien machine changed Lois, but one day they'll show that episode and it will make sense, you know? So <laughs> you fill it in yourself. Yes. So treasure of the Incas, we'll go scene by scene as we typically do on the show, but just big picture, what were your overall impressions and, and how did this live up to your memory of it? And I don't know how long it's been since you watched this one, but I, I would be curious, uh, you know, how, again, what the experience was like now versus the last time you watched it. So I'm actually tremendously glad you asked me to do this particular episode because I do remember vividly watching it as a child, have not seen it since I was a child, but because my own heritage is Spanish and Guatemalan, the Guatemalan side, my mother's side is Mayan. But for a long time, I thought we were Aztec. And so I had a huge love for all things that were you know, Aztec warrior and the Panther gods and all of the, you know, just the culture in general, I thought was really tough and really cool. And so these, these beautiful title cards that come up at the beginning of the episodes, and then one said treasure of the Incas. And I went, yes, this is, this is going to be the best thing ever. And I remember that just because I grew up in a house that had all of these Mayan tapestries and napkins and everything is hand woven and everything is embroidered. And uh, I was just so used to that, that the very first time in the episode where they actually show you, oh, this is the Inca tapestry. I looked at it and as a little boy, I went, no, it isn't. I don't know who drew that, but that is not, <laughs> that is not an Inca tapestry. So I made some notes about that, but that, that was my memory. Like, as a child. And so I, I thoroughly enjoyed going back as an adult thinking, all right, now that I know what I know about the limitations of production schedules and budgets, and you know, they really did a phenomenal job, all things considered. But it was really nice to bookend it, as it were, and, and bring my two uh, perspectives together. Oh, that's no, that's great to hear. And I, I'm excited to compare notes as we get deeper into the episode. So I guess kind of on the note of the limitations, this is an episode where we have predominantly white actors portraying South American characters. Now, this is far from the most, you know, egregious instance. In a few episodes, we'll get to Drums of Death, uh, Riddle of the Chinese Jade. There are numerous instances in the show that when uh, different ethnic groups are portrayed, it, it typically leaves something to be desired. I think that's fair to say, uh, either in terms of the casting or just the depictions where we often lean into uh, broad stereotypes. And one that even comes to mind for myself from season two, I'm Italian. We have the Italian diner owner uh, in one of the season two episodes. And it's very much like, I'm making the meatball sandwich. And it's like, all right. <laughs> now yeah. I, I bring this up because I just want to at least address it. My, and I, I'm going to get your take on this. My, my feeling, my perspective as the host of this, I, when we talk about these sorts of issues, my, my, I feel that the purpose here is not to ignore or absolve or condemn, but rather to just acknowledge <laughs> and address, right? So we understand the context, the time in which these things were made, things that were commonplace then that 
would not be now, rightly so. Uh, so it's not that we're here to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, rip these apart. But at the same time, I, I don't want to gloss over it either because it is a reality of it. So that's kind of where I land of, of acknowledging, but not not condemning or absolving. It just it, it is it is what it is. And what, what what how do you feel about this? Well, I mean, I was still glad they made the episode, even as a kid. No, I, I was still glad that it was there. And, and and you have to remember that in that era, the the whole appeal of showing something like that that was exotic is because we knew very little of what it was really like. You know, you could read an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel or you could, you know. So you can forgive them a lot that they weren't entirely accurate because there was such a huge unknown about it. And if it was a good adventure, sometimes that would be that would be good enough. I don't think anyone ever intended anything harmful. It was just a matter of, you know, we, uh, we want to tell this story. There's a certain amount of detail that is enough and let's keep going. Yeah. Well said, well said. So I would say for myself, as far as other big impressions, I enjoyed this episode well enough. This was, this would not fall in the category of my favorite season one episodes, but it's, I don't have the issues with it that I that I have with some of the other ones that uh, I sort of I sort of uh, rated lower. So this is kind of in the middle for me. Uh, I think that, like I said, I think it's it's a great showcase for for Jim. Uh, he has a lot of funny one liners and and a few really heroic moments where he steps mm-hmm. in to try to defend Lois. So I I appreciated that that competition that rivalry between uh, Clark and Lois is on. Full display, although it's pretty one-sided in this episode, right? It's a lot of Lois's frustration over Clark being there and being part of this. And I did feel a little frustrated with Lois at points because she was really so dismissive and discounting the uh, theories that Clark had cultivated that actually proved to be right. And had she gotten out of her own way and, and listened, uh, she would have gotten to the bottom of it. And obviously we need to have our story and we need to you know, we, we need to get to the climax of it and everything, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't know how great Lois, Lois came off here. I was a little bit, this is not the first time I've been a little frustrated with Lois. Uh, the rescue episode was a big example of that. And, and we were kind of getting into that territory here as well, but, but yeah, at the same time, I, I definitely still enjoyed it overall. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to that, my experience was watching them all jump around and and be random. You know, you watch their dynamic change for me day to day for no reason. So you you really didn't have a chance to examine why you just, again, like going back to elementary school, there are some days that girls are just really annoyed with you and you don't know why they just are. So I just, (laughs) I gave it the same uh, blanket of, of explanation, I suppose. Fair but I, but I, I I will agree that sometimes the in this episode, if Lois had just decided to work with Clark, then many things could have been very different. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we'll give a quick uh, guest star alert here. So here are here are our major uh, guest players. We had Hal Gerard as Professor Lavera. We had Leonard Penn as Pedro Mendoza or Scarface. Uh, Juan Duval is Dr. Cuesta and, and the, uh, MVP utility player, uh, brother of director, Tommy Carr, Stephen Carr as Don Anselmo. This was another instance where he had a very prominent role. He pops up in a dozen or more of these season one episodes, always as a different character. And sometimes they're little, little bit parts and other times he gets more of a showcase. And this definitely falls into that latter, uh, category. I've said this before. The first time I watched the show, I was not 
tuned into the fact that he kept popping up as these different players. Maybe a testament to his acting. We'll give him that. But now as I'm watching it again, of course, I'm and I, I haven't been checking ahead of time. I'm just watching each one. And and when he showed up, I was like, oh, there he is again. So again, uh, MVP utility player on the show. Yeah, like Richard Donner's brother. He's in there. <laughs> He's there. All right. Yep. So let's uh, let's head into our scene by scene approach to Treasure of the Incas. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year. This multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. So we open on the streets of Metropolis outside this auction on South American antiquities. Uh, Lois gets out of her car. She's walking in. She's stopped by this man on the street. He doesn't give her his name yet. We'll learn later. He's Professor Lavera. And he asks her to go in and bid on this tapestry for him. Uh, he can't go. It's too dangerous for him to go in. So he hands her $1,000. She can bid up to $1,000 to obtain this piece. I mean, even today, if a stranger handed you $1,000, that'd be a lot. 70 years ago. I mean, that's kind of an astounding sum. I looked it up. Do you want to know how much it is? Oh, please. Yeah. $11,289.43. <laughs> yeah, that was something. That was really something. Uh, so, you know, Lois's reaction, to, you know, definitely tracks. And he says to her, he's like, you look like one who can be trusted, uh, <laughs> which, you know, she she is. But that's that's quite a leap of faith uh, to take uh, with someone you <laughs> you don't know at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for Lois to do it. Yes. I, I just assumed it was her reporter's curiosity, the same killed the cat curiosity that she always has that made her do it. But still a heck of a thing to happen both ways. Yeah, and I'm sure she figured she would get the story right afterward, but she doesn't have the opportunity because right after she goes in, our our scarred man shows up behind Lavera on the street and uh, walks him into this alley. And, you know, they go behind the corner so we don't see it, but he kills, he kills Lavera. Again, this is season one. People die in season one. 
Mm-hmm. Again, we don't, this was actually fairly tame for the show. I and mean, we've seen people get shot and whatnot, but this, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of hit it behind the corner here. Yeah. And, and you're not exactly sure. Again, as a kid, you see around the corner, you hear a thump and then you just see a hand fall and you don't know, maybe he's just unconscious and not until later do you, you get the phone call and it's Kent and he's at the morgue and you go, Oh, well, and even before that, because when, when we, you know, we see one of the figures walk back, but we only see, you know, the feet, right? So they don't actually show you Scarface's face walking out. And for a brief moment, I, I, you know, again, forgetting, you know, my, my initial viewing of this a couple of years ago, at first I was like, oh, did Vera get the jump on the guy? And clearly not, Mm -hmm. but you know, they did play with that, that little mystery for a few seconds there. And then I keep calling him Scarface. We'll learn his name is Pedro Mendoza, but he stops Lois outside of the antique uh, auction and purports to be a friend of Professor Lovera. And Lois, you know, very quick, she's like, well, I didn't know his name. He never told me his name. And he's like, I'll take this, you know, I'll take this and give it to him. And Lois really, really holds her ground. She's like, well, if he wants Mm it, I'm Lois Lane. I'm at the Daily Planet. He can come and get it. I really like, I like this back and forth. And I liked how resolute she was in, in, in being so steadfast and refusing to hand it over. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're really proud of her in that instance. She was definitely General Sam Lane's daughter. You know, you, you, you are not who you say you are. It doesn't take my, my full reporter radar to pick up on that. So she knew. Yes. Oh, for sure. So we cut to the Daily Planet and Lois, Clark and Jim are in Clark's office studying this tapestry. And this is, again, I think one of the uh, one, <laughs> one of those Jim lines where he's like, it's got a hole in it. And they're like, well, it's a yeah. cutout, Jim. And he's like, well, it's still a hole. He's not wrong. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. But it also was not a tapestry. It was on paper. Yes, I was curious about that. So, so there's that aspect, and also, this is the comic book collector in me. But I felt like Lois was really manhandling this uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this rare, valuable relic as well. <laughs> yeah, and and I was all set. I'd made these notes. I was all set to just blast the fact that this entire episode they run around with this piece of paper, calling it a tapestry, and then later in the episode they switch it. It's an actual tapestry. Oh yeah, that's so right. whatever shooting schedule or, or, or production schedule they had, or maybe the prop maker was whatever, um, they just went with it. And and our first uh, three exposures to this Inca tapestry is what amounts to what looks like a child's painting on one side of a big piece of paper. And even as a child, I thought that's not an Inca tapestry because. Let, let me explain. So for those people who may not know, the, the Incas are out of uh, Peru. And so a lot of this episode is based on the city of Lima in Peru. So if you think of South America, it's about one third of the way down on the left-hand side, right by the coast of the Pacific Ocean. So there's Mexico, you go further south. There's Guatemala, you go further south. There's Panama, where I was born, you go further south. You get into South America, you go about a third of the way down. Now you're in almost you know Tarzan type territory of of South America. And so think of the art that would be there. If you Google Inca tapestry, you'll see that there are uh, many more border decorations. There are stair-step motifs. There are many more animals. It's it's more of a hieroglyph form of storytelling. It's, It's what you would think of if you think of movies like El Dorado and the Lost City of Gold and the way that all of the the armaments have this jagged, you know, 
like it's it's Emperor's New Groove. It's it's that kind of a look. And you look at this episode, and it's like a child tried to draw some sort of pack animal, and it had a head. <laughs> And it had four legs and the stars that went around were American stars. They were the five pointed stars. And I literally turned my head when I was a kid from the television to my own wall and saw, you know, that, that this would. And so because as a child, you fill in your own uh, adventure, I thought, oh, it's a trick. It's a trick. They sold, they sold her something. It's not really one. They'll find out that it's not one. So I kept expecting that moment where someone realizes that, nope, nope, it was just, uh, it was just a half done prop, and uh, <laughs> and that's all there was to it. So, different experience. No, no that's the thing, because right, you know, virtually any other kid watching that right would have wouldn't have that connection point, and would just kind of go along with it. But you, you know, you knew better, and you actually had something authentic to be able to compare it to. So. Uh, but I appreciate your headcanon, you know, and, and, <laughs> and giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's like, oh, this is going somewhere. And it's like, yeah, unfortunately not. But, you know. Yeah. But like I said, you I mean, you go with it. It's uh, it's there for the adventure. And so uh, the suspension of disbelief is is more fun. So. So they're, you know, comparing notes, uh, the, talking about how odd the situation is and what happened to this guy and and all of that. And. Uh, you know, Lois makes a remark about uh, something rotten in Denmark, right? A, a, a phrase which I will admit I was not familiar with, but I did a little quick uh, search and I educated myself. And then Shakespeare, yeah. And then Clark uh, turns it and says something rotten in Peru, which Jim thinks is hilarious. <laughs> really, <laughs> he really likes that joke. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you think he got paid by the laugh the way he threw himself into that one. <laughs> Yes. So, you know, Lois and Jim leave and Clark gets a call. He's called down to the morgue, which we find out in the next scene when Lois is in her office and she gets a call from Clark. He says, I'm at the morgue. Professor Lavera was killed uh, and to come down and bring the tapestry. Right. But before Lois can go to meet Clark, uh, Mendoza shows up at at Lois's office and uh, knocks her out and takes the uh, and takes the tapestry. Mm hmm. So we then find Clark out on the street in front of the morgue, impatient as he always is. The George Reeves Clark is very, a very impatient man. He does not like to wait around. He's checking his watch, walking back and forth. Uh, he uses, at a minimum, his X-ray vision, but it's, it seems that there's a bit of telescopic vision uh, involved here as well. I don't know quite how far the, the morgue is supposed to be from the Daily Planet, but at some, some distance, so I think we had a little bit of telescopic vision going on there too. That's how I took it, yeah. That, that he looked halfway across the city to find out why Lois was not here. Yeah, which I, I like that. Now, this leads to uh, a real standout moment, for better or worse, in this episode where <laughs> Clark <laughs> runs into the alley to change into Superman. And, you know, this is footage we've seen in, in various episodes of him going in and out of, in, in the alley as Clark out of Superman. But the the component they add here is that there's a police officer who sees Clark run into the alley and sees Superman fly out. Uh, what, what, what did you make of this? I, at first I thought, oh, that's it. The jig's up. But then I realized, well, he only saw the back of a guy running into the alley. So I I don't know why they felt the need to put that in there at all, except just to provide just a little bit of, of drama of, oh, oh you got to be careful. But yeah, I mean, it, it went nowhere. It didn't It didn't amount to anything later. It was just a little moment of... You know, there are other people on the street in the city. So just to be, just to remind you of that. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I, I go back and forth on that little bit because I do appreciate that as much as we're seeing our stock footage of Clark, it's like, hey, there there is other stuff going on. There are other people here. And to your point, because I was thinking about this, it's like, yeah, w- what did this guy really see? What would he be able to tell somebody, right? Yeah, he saw the back of a guy in a suit and a hat running in, right? That doesn't give away Clark's identity. But the, the other thing I liked about it was we've been talking about this in various episodes, this whole notion of, you know, do the people of Metropolis think that Superman has a dual identity? And why would they think that he has a dual identity? And something like this actually goes a long way towards supporting any belief that the citizens of Metropolis might have, right? If this cop, and I'm sure there are other instances of this where people might be like, hey, like we saw this guy run into an alley. <laughs> they can't identify Clark, but they know that some guy went into an alley and then Superman came out. So I think mm-hmm. it works on a few levels. It, and it, it was interesting slash surprising that there is no follow-up to it it's just like this random little bit but i I did appreciate it yeah i I mean again like these adventure stories are every now and then supposed to supposed to make you go "Uh uh-oh you know as if something could happen here and that was just one of those little moments it did make you think that for one second so you know it was uh it was what what it was for sure so superman flies to uh, lois's office helps her up gets her situated uh, she starts explaining, you know, kind of what's been going on and she catches herself. She's like, oh, you don't know about any of this. He's like, no, Kent briefed me. And she asks, you know, if Clark learned anything uh, at the morgue. And so Superman shares what Clark learned, uh, which is that, Le- that the man was Lavera and he was this professor at the University of Lima. So right now Lois knows where she needs to go. Of course, Superman tries to tries to uh, keep her out of it. He's like, why don't you let I actually can't handle this one, but this is really now the beginning of this, this thread here in this episode where she's like, no, like this is my story and, uh, and, and I'm going to follow this myself, which leads us to the sole uh, appearance of Perry White in this episode. Just, just one scene here where mm-hmm. Lois is talking about making these uh, travel arrangements that Perry needs to okay. And, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's very resistant. What, what was your take on, on how this, this back and forth played out? I I could not believe the boldness of Lois when she just announces she's already bought Pan Am tickets. So I'm assuming she did that with Daily Planet money. And Barry, of course, is righteously upset. Like, you know, you did what? And then, you know, she convinces him that it's important enough. And not only does he tell her, you know, take Jimmy with you as if, you know, let's add child endangerment to this <laughs> to this plan. But then she's so happy about it. She kisses Perry on the lips. That was the one that I went, wow. <laughs> I uh, did not see, I didn't see that response coming. But later when you go back and you look at that, you think Perry never said take Clark. Right. And and only as an adult do you realize, well, that's for the sake of the story because the writers had to create the scenario. And so therefore, but in in what I would imagine the, the way the Daily Planet functions, Perry would have said, well, I'm not letting you just fly off to Peru, a woman by herself. You're taking Clark, this big, strong man who's proven himself time and time again. You know, you're not leaving unless you take Clark. But that's not what he did. So you, you get the sense of, okay, this is, this is going to be somewhat of a Jimmy showcase. Let's just see what happens. For sure. Yeah, that, yeah you hit the nail on the head, right, from a, from a story perspective perspective it, like it doesn't make any sense it's like bring jimmy for protection it's like well who's going to protect jimmy um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the kiss was great it was funny because 
you know, you, you see this, this back and forth and again, you know, he relents and, and she talks about how oh, I have to go home and pack. He's like, you, mean you haven't packed yet. And you know, she, she gives him that kiss and you see just for that, that brief moment, the, the slightly softer side of this version of Perry White, which we don't get much of, uh, on this series. So, uh, yeah, a, a brief, but effective scene for, uh, John Hamilton's Perry White. And we get some stock footage of an airplane and, uh, people disembarking and we get our title card telling us that we are in Lima, Peru and then we have mm-hmm. Jim and Lois coming out of their hotel. This is, I thought, the the funniest, best Jim scene uh, of the episode. His, quote unquote, his brand of Spanish, uh, Mr. Senor. What, what do you make of this? I thought this was so funny. Oh, my. Well, again, you know, I, I brought my own culture and heritage to it. And when when they first walk out of that little cantina or, or place that they're in before they step out onto the streets, um, and Lois was, you know, telling him that the, the Spanish conversation he tried to have inside didn't exactly pan out, you know. And Jimmy goes, well, it was a crummy hotel, so they speak crummy Spanish. And I just laughed. Like, here's here's the American blaming his <laughs> poor Spanish on the locals. Um, and, of course, I knew because my mother was Guatemalan and my father is Spanish that the dialects can be wildly different. The the language can be different. The meanings can be different. The words to describe things can be very different. So of course I knew that in Peru, their version of Spanish is not going to sound like the Spanish that, that Jimmy knows. So I was at once sort of like half rolling my eyes about it, but then half like, no, that's actually funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, you know, again, even funnier when you find out what, what Jimmy's brand of Spanish actually consists of, right? Because he goes up to the cab driver and he says, uh, Mr. Senor. Right. And, and then, of course, his first question is, habla espanol. So he asks the driver if he speaks Spanish. And then once he gets confirmation of that, he's very excited. He's like, okay, the cab driver speaks Spanish. Then he launches into, could you? He says, could you communicado? <laughs> Two of us. <laughs> To, uh, I think, does he say El Capitan uh, to the yeah. policia? He gets, he gets enough of it there, right? Where the cab driver <laughs> understands. But you, you, yeah. know, you learn what his brand of Spanish consists of. And it's uh, a lot of English. And <laughs> yeah, but very funny. Yeah, he had some yeah. good bits and, in this episode. And, and you notice the, uh, the leeway that Lois will give Jimmy, whereas she gives none to Clark. If, if Clark had pulled that same attempt, she would have looked at him like, you are the world's most useless man. But with Jimmy, it's, you did great. Let's go. So very, very telling. Yes. Very, yeah, I know. Very much so. So we get to uh, El Capitan de la, de la Policia, and uh, the police captain says he'll check the uh, plane passengers, right, to see if anyone matches the description of this, this scarred man. And he does point Lois and Jim to Dr. Cuesta, the president of the university. He's like, you should talk with him. I'll give him a call first. And before they depart, he kisses Lois's hand. And Jim's mm-hmm. eyes just about pop out of his head. It's the craziest thing he's ever seen. And it'll happen again in the next scene when they meet uh, Lavera's assistant. So uh, yeah, it definitely made it a big impression on Jim, this custom of uh, uh, kissing the woman's hand. Yeah. Uh, I remember the, the first time I saw that scene, the way that the uh, the police capitan was dressed reminded me so much of Zorro and the the bad guys on Zorro because they had the the diagonal sashes and they had the the military accoutrements and they had the dark suits but with the with the gold and uh, I, I just 
you know, was transported back. And, and so a lot of the love in the episode, you know, previously, you know, 10 seconds ago, I'm rolling my eyes at Jimmy, but then I see this guy and I'm like, Oh yeah. So it, it sort of uh, got me leaning back in a little bit just to, to think, all right, here's where the episode really starts. Here's where the good <laughs> stuff is, is going to happen. And uh, I, I did think that, uh, you know, is this going to be, he's going to woo her or does this kiss on the hand lead somewhere? Is this going to be a, an issue when, when Clark comes because Clark always comes. Um, so yeah, I found that really interesting. That hooked me right back in. Yeah. I, I too thought that this might be setting up some sort of, you know, romantic hint, you know, or, or something that might trigger something in Clark. And obviously we don't, we don't get there, but, uh, but yeah, definitely made, made note of it just as Jim did. Uh, so then we go to the university and they're greeted by Don uh, Anselmo. This is, again, the Stephen Carr character, Lavera's assistant, who brings them in to meet Dr. Cuesta. And just as they're about to debrief him on everything, he find, they find out that uh, their countryman has already done that. So we cut over to Clark uh, sitting there in the corner. And, and of course, you know, this, this sets Lois off. That, uh... Now, Clark says that the chief sent him. But I think it's mm-hmm. fair to say he took this upon himself. I can't imagine Perry okaying uh, further, further expenses. I, I've sat there thinking, and even as a child, and I would, I would talk about this, you know, as you do when you have friends in the neighborhood and you just sit around all summer and you talk about Superman, like during these moments, did he even take a plane or did he just fly over as Superman? And he somehow is going to have a cover story of why he didn't need to buy a plane ticket because for him to be there already, would almost hint that by the time he found out about all this, he had no choice but to just fly over as Superman. And he always had that half smirk of, you know, come on, kids, you know, I just flew over here as Superman. I, I agree with everything except that he would have a cover story because this version of Clark, like literally what he says to Jim, he goes, Jim, when I'm in a hurry to get someplace, I really fly. Like he makes no... <laughs> There's like no, no effort, no effort to be like, oh, Superman tipped me off and I I was able to catch a flight. Like there's none of that, which there's, there's something very endearing to me about his, his almost, you know, lack of regard for his own secret and the way he just kind of leans into it. uh, And, and is, is almost so in your face about it, that it, 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 it works in its own weird way where it's like. I think if he if he did try to come up with these lame excuses, people would see through that more. But he throws in these lines like this that, of course, are a wink to the audience. Uh, but for the other characters, like for whatever reason, they don't, you know, they just uh, they, they don't see through it. It's this weird effect. Yeah. And, you know, and you can probably dig way too deep into the psychology of it. and think, you know, does this hint that he really does think that he's superior in the way that he doesn't feel that they're going to catch on and he can just stand there and smirk and it'll all be, you know, uh, a non-issue. Maybe. Maybe. I think if we were doing really a a deep psychological dive, I think there might be something to that in all honesty. Perhaps. I I mean, because as, as we know from the way that the Superman and Lois dynamic continues into the future with other actors and other stories and so on, he eventually just falls back to just like, he's, decides it's okay if Lois thinks she's crazy, you know? So <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Maybe. I, I mean, in, in these days it's so that the kids can be in on the joke. And so we'll leave it with that, with that innocent intent. But every now and then you think, well, actors, they need to make their jobs interesting. So perhaps they, they infuse their performances with certain attributes and, and who knows what, what may have been part of that. 
Yeah, for sure. And interesting to ponder, if nothing else. So uh, the scene continues, and now the pieces are starting to, to come into place, right? Dr. Cuesta retrieves uh, another tapestry uh, from his safe and explains that the one that was stolen is a key, right? When you lay it on top of this one, that hole that Jim was so fixated on, that star cutout, will point to this uh, buried Inca treasure. Now, as he's going through all of this, we get a number of cuts to to the assistant, the Stephen Carr character. Uh, so there's really no mystery here about who's who's involved in this plot because we get mm-hmm. so many cuts and so many uh, you know, intent looks from him, and and he's clearly taking uh, very uh, paying very close attention when Cuesta is uh, is you know entering the combination on the safe and all of that. So the the, the pieces for us as well uh, are starting to fall into place. Yeah, I mean it 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 was Scooby Doo level. You know who the villain is. I mean the way that they had him do his facial expressions, and he was clearly spying on the safe combination, and you know that was that was pretty the right amount of, of telegraphing to the kids. Watch this guy. Yes. And, and then he, he proceeds to offer his car uh, to Lois and Jim while they're there. And, and Clark, you know, Clark is quick to say that things are getting clearer, right? He doesn't explain exactly what he means by that, but he's starting to figure things out. Uh, and Lois gets one of those digs in there where she says something to the effect of like, well, we, you know, I wish we were all as bright as you or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even to you know, she tells him not to take any wooden pesos, which is such a such a just a mean thing to say. But again, very sandlot, very elementary school, very just. Oh, I thought of one more, and so I'm going to give it to you. Um, this is also the scene where the first time the tapestry is a tapestry. <laughs> yeah, at least they they got it right by that scene. And well, the mm-hmm. dig about the wooden pesos, and it's like she even she had already left the room, and she comes back in, and she's just kind of mm-hmm. leaning on the door. She says it. Uh, I, I I like the the physical bit there. Uh, but yeah, I mean like really, really digging in. Jim had another great line where, uh, he's like me, I'm on, a, I feel like I'm on a merry-go-round. Like this poor kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And see, and then again, as a kid, I'm like, yep, now we're back to the gym. That's not very much help here. He's just confused. Yes. Uh, from there we go back to the, to the police station and the captain has a few photos to show Lois and Jim and the assistant who's there. So he's now, you know, clued into everything that's going on. And Lois identifies the man with the scar, who the police captain says is uh, Pedro Mendoza, very uh, you know unsavory character. Uh, Jim, another one of these lines that he's sure. What does he say? Uh, he sure has a mean puss. That's uh, that's, <laughs> that's that's Jim's assessment uh, of the character. So you know, uh, you know, the, the case is starting to break here. It's like this is a major lead for them. But uh, Anselmo is like, well, while the police are working. <laughs> How about I drive you around the countryside? And of course, he's asking Lois specifically, but Jim is quick to be like, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Lois is, is uh, you know, sort of keeps him at bay. And she's like, well, I'll let you know in the morning uh, and, and all of that. So the next morning, I guess she has uh, decided to go along and she and Jim are getting in the car. And this is when Clark shows up. And this was the scene that I think really really kind of bugged me and, and made me uh, a little mad at Lois, right? Because he spent the whole rest of the day and night in the library, right? Reading up on the culture and, and these the, these treasures and the geography. And, you know, it's not like they have no idea, right? Because they know where that cutout was on the one tapestry, right? So sort of mm-hmm. using your memory and imagination to overlay it over Quest's tapestry. It's like, well, you have maybe some idea. And so he identifies mm-hmm. a town, Madeira, where in the foothills where the, the treasure could be. 
at least at mm-hmm. something. Right. Yeah. And Lois had no respect that Clark put in all that work like a real reporter would. And at that point, you wonder, like, what's the competition over the byline here? Because why can't she say, you know what? Even if I invite Clark to come with us and I just use him for his information and later I snake the byline anyway, it's still in her own Machiavellian self-interest to invite Clark along, but she would rather keep him out of the car and just shut him down entirely. This guy who's flown all the way over, you know, so yeah, that's that's one where you, but, but Phyllis sells it though, because she doesn't make it seem like it's just furthering this, this scenario that like she sells it like she has an emotional reason that she's treating Clark this way. She's, she's such a good actress. So it leaves you sort of with this, this question mark of, okay, I don't know why she continues to do that, but she's going to get herself in trouble again because it's her own, her own fatal flaw that, that this is how she gets in her tough spots. If she had been more of a colleague, then, you know, and, and you got to think, too, that that later when things go wrong, they could have gone much worse. So it's not just, a, oh, oops, you know, slight error in judgment. No, I mean, Jimmy could have died. There was there was some real danger later. So, yeah, I mean, it's, she's real snide when she says to Clark as they're driving off. Thanks for the geography lesson, Clark. And and I think the thing about it, too, is, again, I think in, in fairness to Lois, you know, maybe the aspect of the byline, though, that's not said explicitly, right? But she says it's my story. So presumably she has that in mind. And also, you know, we know what her reaction was when Perry said, you know, take take Olsen for protection, right? And, and you know, just sort of this whole implication, like she's a woman, she can't protect herself. Uh, so I'm sure that's kicking around too, where she already relented and allowed Jim to come. And it's like, you know, from her perspective, again, we kind of surmise Clark took this upon himself. But from her perspective, it's like, well, geez, like, you know, Perry had to send yet another person. I can't do my job by myself. So that's all well and good. Uh, now go ahead. No, I, I'll buy that. That that's what she was. That's what she was feeling. Uh, so you know, it, it it tracks to an extent. I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that is enough. As I as I'm kind of convincing myself, maybe that's enough. Because what I was going to say is, I I would have appreciated if there was maybe a little bit more antagonism or ribbing from Clark's side. Like, I think what, what kind of bugged me about this episode a little bit was just, it felt so one-sided, right? Like, I feel like Clark is coming off as pretty reasonable and generous in terms of what he's doing. And she's just like brushing him off. Whereas if there was a little bit more friction kind of from both ends, I, I feel like I would have bought it a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, watching these out of order, you just assume, I missed an episode. They had some sort of fight. There's some reason. This is a carryover from something. Um, but, you know, you've been doing them in order. Uh, I'll I'll defer to you of whether you think there was a, a, a linear intent. There, well, that's the thing. Like we've, we've mentioned in these episodes that they didn't air in the, the order in which they were shot, right? They were shot in batches of like four or five episodes at a time. And they would do, you know, all the Perry White scenes together. And so, so, you know, regardless of how you watch them, I don't think there's really any way in this first season to really discern a true, you know, narrative thread or anything like that. Um, so it's, it's frustrating in a certain sense, but, uh, but, but also freeing in a way as well. It's like, you really just take each one of these things, uh, kind of in a vacuum. Like it's just sort of Mm -hmm. is what it is. Each, each little, uh, short movie, uh, short film as it were. So 
<laughs> we have uh, we follow Lois and Jim and uh, Anselmo in this very long drive uh, in <laughs> the desolate countryside here, uh, and it's hot and they're uncomfortable. And eventually he stops and kicks them out of the car and and points a gun at them. He's like, "This is where where you get out." So now mm-hmm. he reveals, uh, you know, his his true intentions and. Uh, and this is where Jim, I felt Jim had one of his best moments where he really sprang into action and uh, and, and jumped on top of him. And uh, they rolled down the hill a bit and then uh, Lois tussled with him and eventually, you know, was kind of thrown to the ground and uh, he drives off. But uh, yeah, I, I thought Jim, Jim came off great here. And Lois too. I mean, like they really, they fought, they put up, they made an effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I even made a note, like good for Jimmy. He, he stuck up for Lois. He, you know, he got in there. Um, but again, this is what I was saying a second ago of this guy pulled out a gun. He could have just not said a word and shot them. And Clark would have later found them and it could have all been horrible and it would have been Lois's fault. So that's those things that, you know, uh, you, you don't really think about in the moment, maybe when you're young, but in upon rewatch, you, uh, you, you do notice, but, uh, I, I got a little nostalgic for the fact that the way that Phyllis Coates jumped on the back of of Scarface was very similar to the Margot Kidder fight in the diner when uh, she defended Clark by jumping on the back. Um, so Phyllis did it first. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a that's a great reference for sure. Uh, so you know they decide to to follow the car they're going to follow and they're going to walk it and they're going to follow the, the tire tracks. I mean, again, I think this is probably another instance where the sensible thing, uh, even though it, I guess they've been driving a long time, right? It probably would have taken them a while to get back, but they probably should have just turned around and went back, but instead they decided to follow and we'll see the trouble that that gets them in. But again, Jim was the MVP here, uh, you know, where she asks like, are you with me? And he's like, well, I told the chief, you know, I, I wouldn't let you out of my sight. And then I'm cutting, I'm jumping ahead for a second, but when they're tied up in the cave chained and the dynamite's about to go off, he's like, well, I kept my word to the chief. Like I stayed mm-hmm. with you to the end. I mean, Jim really, I, I know I keep saying it, but he really was my MVP in this episode. So many great I'll moments. give it to him. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely give him everything he earned on, on this one. He was brave. He was loyal. Uh, he exhibited uh, the thing that as a boy you want to see in that kind of a character. Like if he were that all the time, then he'd be, yeah, you're Hardy Boys material. You're the guy who I can get behind every single time. So, yeah, shining moment, absolutely. You know, I feel like what this episode, I think, did really well with Jim was that I think it reconciled and balanced a lot of the different versions of the character where there are instances where he is a goof, right, and and played for laughs, like with Mr. Senor and all of that. But he also proves himself to be heroic and, you know, capable to an extent. I mean, they still, it's <laughs> still not enough to win the day, but, uh, you know, you get to see different sides. So it's not, he's not totally a joke. He's also not, you know, he's not, uh, the, the hero of the story, but he, you know, you, you kind of get different, different sides. So I thought this episode really treated him, uh, well, you got some of the, the best flavors of, of Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, he did. And, and also to have him be, you know, so far out of his element, like he didn't know very much at all about his surroundings or what the right thing to do was. So he really just went with the core of the little bit that was Jimmy and that we got to see, okay, when all he has is that, what is he? Well, he's really loyal. He loves Clark and Lois. I mean, he'll do anything for either of them. And we, we saw, oh, okay. So that's, 
that's that Tony Stark thing. Like, you know, strip away the armor. What are you? We'll take like, what's at the, at the center of Jimmy. We got to see it for sure. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah! Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. So... They uh, they follow the, the tire tracks and it eventually leads them to, to your earlier point, a cave. A cave. <laughs> a cave. There, there must have been some near the lot that were just wonderful to film in. And they just wrote the wrote the scripts to, okay, and in this one, there's a cave. Yeah, caves really do get a lot of play. I've not been keeping count, but when you mentioned it, it definitely, uh, you know, made me think back. And it's like, yeah, there are a bunch that have their climax, their final showdown in a cave, uh, including this one. Jim says it's, uh, it's it's darker than the tunnel of love in there. And they make their way in and instantly apprehended. Uh, you know, once again, Jim tries to fight. He gets, he gets knocked down. Uh, they get chained up. And uh, Anselmo and, and uh, Mendoza, they uh, plant and light some dynamite. There's one wall standing between them and this treasure. Oh, I didn't mention this, but when uh, we had the debrief scene with with Cuesta at the university earlier on, we got the backstory that uh, Lavera wanted to find these treasures to uh, share with the people, right? He was going to donate it to the government to be distributed to the needy and the poor. So very altruistic. Uh, And obviously these guys have the the opposite intention. So they light this dynamite and, and, and head out. Uh, I did like, I think there was a bit of a continuity error, right, in terms of where they place the, the the dynamite and then where we see it later. But when we see it on the ground, the cord is in the shape of an S. Yeah. Yep, it sure is. Yeah. And, and it's your old school, you know, Wiley Coyote stick of dynamite, but they did the cord in a in an S. Yeah. So that was a nice touch. And, you know, Lois and Jim think that they're at their end and then they hear, you know, what we hear 
uh, as, as we're watching, it's the saddest, the wind of, of, of uh, Superman is flying. Yeah. And, and Lois is so used to hearing it, you know, like you see Phyllis Coates, face light up and she goes, it sounds like, you know, so, you know, for all of her, how do I keep getting myself into these situations? Um, you really felt the relief. It was, uh, it was palpable it, with Phyllis's performance of, oh, thank God I hear that noise. You know, one of the other things I was thinking with this episode, uh, this is very light on Superman action. I mean, we really just had mm -hmm. that one moment earlier on where he flies to the office after she's been knocked out. And then this quick rescue here. And we don't even get a tussle with the bad guys the way we normally do. You know, Superman shows up and he throws the dynamite towards them. And there's this very quick line uh, that I feel like it's just like thrown in there. Maybe it's been thrown in after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or he's like, oh, that'll that trap them. I'll get them later. I feel like that was an after the fact uh, addition. I feel like super and this season one Superman, I feel like he just chucked the dynamite at those guys and was <laughs> ready to be done. That is how it looked because he, he didn't even glance behind him. He knew the two bad guys were running that way, meaning behind his back away from him. So he just takes the dynamite, basically throws it in their general direction without looking. And you see an explosion. They're still upright. They're still running, sort of. But then you see smoke and some amount of rock fall. Now, you don't know, did it fall behind them? Is this just, did they cut the scene before the entire tunnel that they were in collapsed and crushed them? You know, and, and so I'm totally with you that at some point somebody stopped the filming on set right then and said, oh, we need to say something to the kids about how they're not dead. So it, it was definitely jammed in there really quick of, you know, but Reeves, you know, spend like two seconds. Don't spend too long on it, but, but say he's not dead kids. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't make a meal out of that line. Just throw it in real quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Just, just, just throw it in, you know, or you could read it as it was, he felt it was important that he explained to Lois, I didn't just kill those two men. So there is, we talk about this all the time, right? Uh, not just in the context of this show, but if you're a Superman fan, you know, a fair amount of suspension of disbelief, especially with the dual identity. You know, this is an example of an episode where I feel like it really pushes at the fact that Superman happens to be there as well. Uh, and, you know, Lois says, like, how did you find us? And and he makes a remark about, like, Clark told me that you were uh, that you were going to this town of Madera. Now, this from and I, again, I don't mean to nitpick, but, you know, we're here to unpack the episode and talk about it and share our thoughts and questions. So I think what two things kind of I, I bump up against here. One, again, is just the this coincidence that Superman happened to be there, but like it is what it is. But the bigger thing for me is what clued Clark into the fact that Lois was in danger? Right. And how did he tell Superman? Well, that too. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the same thing too, when Superman is in the office with Lois and he's like, oh, Kent, you know, Kent filled me in. It's like, you know, when, how, but at least there it's like, okay, they're in Metropolis, whatever. Um, but yeah, here it's like, how did Clark get in touch with Superman? And again, but how did Clark know? I mean, presumably something's happening off screen. Maybe the police uncovered some connection between the, the professor's assistant and Mendoza or, or some, I mean, I don't know, like you're not, you're not given anything. You got to really kind of fill in the blanks on your own, but it's just one of those things where it's like, why? Why would he think that she was in danger and he he needed to go after her? Based on what we were shown, I don't know that that necessarily tracks, unless I'm glossing over something. Well, I mean, I'm sure had they 
cared to write the explanation, you know, they could have shown Clark did some sort of investigating, found some piece of evidence that connected everything and somehow knew uh, which way the car went, uh, you know, based on the conversation that they told him they were having in the car of, you know, Clark, we're going to this place. Um, But, you know, I guess Superman got worried enough after a certain amount of time and he just went to go check in costume. And um, <clears throat> I will say that I, I loved the physicality of when when Reeves arrived and he did the landing, you know, so you hear the whoosh, right, the noise. But then there's also the reverse noise of when he lands that we all know and love. It's when he comes in through the window. It's when he lands feet first. It's like, that, you know, it's that that other noise. But Reeves doesn't just land and look around and, you know, he lands and runs full speed to the cave opening. I mean, the guy looked like a linebacker. He was, he wasted no time. And when he burst through the wall, you, you got to kind of love him because you know, some of that's paper mache and it's very light, but he's got to make it look like it wasn't, but he almost always trips because it's always sort of underfoot and, and you give him a pass on it, you know, because uh, I've done some things and it's, it's not always easy (laughs) to, to make gravity look like it isn't. So, but even after he burst through the wall, he has this great way of turning his head with his entire torso and then seeing where he needs to go. And then he, he truly just leaps into action. So when he landed in front of Lois and Jimmy, like he wasted no time. These were people he loved and he, he didn't just make a big show of it. It was, there's dynamite. I'm going to throw it over there. I'm going to break their chains. And he just did it in this, this really manly, super kind of a way. I think, that, like, even though we didn't have the the minutes, the screen time that we might have liked to have had of, of Superman in costume, what he did with that 25 seconds was a really powerful exhibition of Superman. You know, it, it's like we got to see the elephant at the circus. This was the power of him. And uh, you didn't forget that. Well said. And, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, we're, we're fortunate now when we watch Superman and Lois or we watch Man of Steel or whatever, any, any uh, the modern uh, tellings in terms of the spectacle and the, and the special effects and what's able to be realized on screen and, uh, and all of that. But you look at something like this and it's so simple, right? But he, to your point, like he just, he sold it and he had that physicality and he had that presence that made you feel like you were watching Superman, um, Mm -hmm. without all of the bells and whistles and everything that you have now. And it, and, and that's sort of that ineffable quality that he had that, you know, it's, you can't just put anyone in that costume, right? But he, he made it work. And I agree. And even in an episode like this, you don't get a ton of Superman action, but what you do get, like he makes it count and it, it's, uh. It's enough to sort of, you know, kind of hold you over to the next week, I suppose. Yeah. And, and you appreciate, too, that, you know, he breaks their chains and the dynamite's exploded. He explains that the bad guys aren't really dead. And Lois and Jimmy stand up and they dust themselves off. And the, the gratitude in Phyllis Coates' eyes when she looks up at Superman is real. And, and I was taking screenshots on my iPad as I was, you know, preparing for this episode. And I zoomed in and I thought, wow, you know. Like if you had known as a kid, you could have done the meme of, I just want someone to look at me the way Felix Coase looks at George Reeves. 
Very true. No, that is very true. And yeah, then we get to our final scene outside the the hotel as as Lois and Jim are getting in the cab to go back to the airport. She has softened now towards Clark. There's no apology though, or anything like that. No acknowledgement that uh, uh, that he was right. But she has at least softened towards him, and uh, you know it mentions how oh you know there were only you know two seats left and. Uh, he's like, well, there, you know, there, there are other ways to get back. And she's like, well, if you had wings, you could fly. And of course we get that final, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of wink to the audience, so to speak, where he's like, come to think of it. That's not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're out and that's our episode. Except I, I had a different take on that last bit because oh. I wrote it down word for word. What Lois said <laughs> was, sorry, we took the last two tickets. And she just like stared at him. And I thought, she's just going to leave him there and not feel bad about it. So even knowing the little bit that she does know that somehow Clark told Superman, go save Lois and Jimmy, she still doesn't feel enough appreciation for Clark to say, we'll wait for the next plane so we can all go together. Oh yeah, no, that's not even, not even, I don't think that even <laughs> no. crossed her mind. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> she just leaves him in Peru. <laughs> but now wait, in fairness, she did tell him that she would tell Perry to expect Clark. So right. I don't know how that helps Clark, but, <laughs> but at least there's that. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I, I think like if you'd wanted to end it on a bit of a laugh, you could just show Clark like in an airplane by himself, just like, well, I can't fly back myself and I don't get to go back with Lois. So here's just Clark on a plane <laughs> just by himself, just looking lonely and like, well, sometimes it's like this, <laughs> but I save Lois. So <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. Well, before we give our final rating uh, for the episode, is there anything that we, that we missed, anything we didn't talk about with, with respect to this episode that you wanted to? Yeah, so I made a few notes because we've been doing a lot of, of Phyllis Coates praising and uh, I just wanted to to uh, shout out that she's a fellow Texan. So she was born, or yeah, born not that far from where I currently live in Dallas in a place called Wichita Falls. So um, that's pretty neat. Also, as I'm sure your listeners are, are well aware, she's the last surviving cast member. So she's still with us. And so, uh, Phyllis, if you're, if you're listening, we love you. Um, she is 96 and going strong. So good for her. Um, she was paid $375 per episode for the show, which I looked it up is $4,200 per episode in today's money. It's insane. Now I don't know what, uh, you know, Bitsy gets, but I think it's more than $4,200 an episode. Yeah. I, well, I mean, look, we know that uh, um, this was not a big budget production, but still, do you know what the what George Reeves' salary was by any chance? I, I didn't look no. that one up. Well, we'll dive into that. I, I, we'll probably do something when we get to the end of season one and uh, heading into season two. We might do some sort of retrospective or something like that and... Uh, you know, any other tidbits and anything that I, I discover along the way, uh, maybe we'll kind of go back and, and mention something like that. We'll see. But yeah, uh, no, I appreciate that, uh, that info. Uh, yeah. I mean, such a, such a wonderful Lois. I, you know, I, I wish she could have been with the series all the way through, or at least through that second black and white season, but you know, so it goes. So it goes, you know, and I, I couldn't tell you when I became aware of George Reeves death 
because obviously everything I was seeing was posthumous. And so I was not, you know, one of the kids who experienced his, uh, his death at the time. And, and I kept thinking, preparing for this, this podcast tonight, like, when did I know? And to be honest, I don't think I have a vivid memory of, of when I found out. And if I did, I think it didn't affect me the way that it, that it did people of a, of an older generation. Um, so like I said, I was, I was watching these in 1972, which was 20 years after they aired. So, uh, I'm sure that I did find out. I'm sure that it, that if it struck me in some way, I, th I think I have a vague memory of wondering like, why did Superman give up? And I'm sure it was a, a much watered down version of that feeling than the kids, you know, at the time. But I remember thinking that didn't make sense. That didn't make sense that Superman did that. And so I think I just filed it away as, well, I don't understand it. Maybe I'll understand it later, but right now I don't understand it. Um, but I think I, I continued to watch the shows and enjoy them and learn from them because, you know, there were quite a few that were wonderful. And the, the overall impression that I had was just how Clark really believed that you could make a difference. And, and he would put up with just about anything. He would put up with Perry barking at him. He would put up with Lois nipping at him because, uh, and I've heard you, you talk about this. I mean, he, he just was a stronger Clark. He wasn't interested in being, uh, he wasn't interested in fooling anybody. He was there to, to tackle things that you could tackle as a reporter in that day with the power that that wielded, where you could go in and ask the questions to the people that were trying to get out of answering them. And, uh, that was, I think, I think my takeaway, but, uh, as, as much as I love rewatching them now, of course, there's the bittersweet element when you see George Reeves and, and, you know, he kind of struggled enjoying the show himself and all those things. But I say all of that to say that it doesn't take away from his performance. It adds to it because when you, when you know all of that and you see what he did anyway, and when you learn later that it was because he truly wanted the children to have the Superman experience that they deserved to have, the way he treated them in public, the way he refused to do some things in the Superman costume, like he held the esteem of the American child, boy and girl, in such high regard that he overcame all of those things so that it wouldn't show. And you really, as you watch these, you so appreciate that more and more and more. And uh, every, every person is complicated. Every person's life is, is, is a mix of things. But I have come to, to see him for those, those strong moments where he summoned it up because he thought American children deserve to see this done in this way and, and, I'm not going to let them down. Oh, beautifully said. And I think that's a wonderful way to look at it. Truly. Uh, I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. So the last thing that we do on these episodes is we give our rating on a scale of one to five fedoras. Uh, so on a scale of one to five, how many would you give treasure of the Incas? So I almost want to cheat and ask if you've given out any fours yet. Well, there have been some fours and fives. Have there? there okay. Have, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I, I would give this a four, I think, because it had it had a mystery that 
was solvable. It had clues that paid off, which is the rules of a mystery. It had hero moments from Jimmy. It had, um, you know, an adventure in an exotic location that was different and interesting. And uh, it, it kept you in it throughout the whole story. And in the end, the, the justice thing that was supposed to have happened did happen. And you can only assume that the people of the town did receive the money from the treasure, which was donated. And so uh, more than just we stopped a criminal, this one ended with we helped an entire town. Had it not been for Lois saying, this is my story and I'm going all the way to Peru to, to pursue it, the people of that town might never have have had better lives. So <clears throat> for all of those reasons, including one of the better happy endings that we got, I would say a four. Okay. I mean, I, I don't, I don't dispute uh, your assessment or description of the episode. It, for me, it doesn't rise to a four. I'm going to give this one a three. This was, I would say sort of average for me. Uh, I really liked the Jimmy of it all. Lois frustrated me. And I guess in terms of the mystery I don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn. I I agree. It's like everything sort of, you know, lines up and and is solvable. I, I guess they. I felt like they gave away the assistant so easily to the audience, which is fine. But I don't know. I I felt that was maybe a little bit too too conv too easy. Uh, and then I guess the not to not to complain about this, but you know, at least you had Clark figuring out where the treasure could be. But other than that, like no one figured out anything. Uh, which, which is okay, but I don't know. I, you know, oh, this was the last thing I was going to say. I feel like even though I enjoyed that scene with Perry, it lifts right out of the episode. Uh, what I would have done is instead of having that scene with Perry, I probably would have had a scene of Clark figuring out something that then sent him after, uh, Lois and Jim. That for me was a little bit of a missing piece here. Uh, and I think that, that, uh, that might've fixed the episode a little bit, a little bit for me as much as I like that Perry scene, but I think. Just in terms of the overall structure of it, that's probably what I would have done. But anyway, for me, this was a three. Well, that's a really good point because what if Lois had bought the Pan Am tickets and just taken Jimmy and gone? And then Clark and Perry have to figure out, well, what do we do about that? And the answer is, well, you're going to have to go after her with everything that you know. That would have been pretty great. Yeah, I think that would have, I think that would have worked, but you know. Again, as I always say, it's easy 70 years later <laughs> to be like, oh, they should have done this. It's like, well, you look, you know, it, it was still an enjoyable episode and very enjoyable. A lot of fun to be able to talk about it with you. Uh, for anyone who wants to keep up with you and your Superman cosplay, uh, I, folks, I really encourage you follow at Wearing the Cape on Instagram. Uh, is there anything else that you want to uh, you want to share with folks or anywhere else you want to direct them? Um. By the time this airs, the event will probably almost be upon us, but uh, March 24th, 25th, and 26th, we're having the Christopher Reeve reunion of many of the surviving cast members that worked with him on the on the Donner films and also uh, Superman 4, including Mark Pillow, Nuclear Man will be there in uh, Richmond, Virginia at GalaxyCon. So um, I'll be lucky enough to be there as part of that gathering. So if, if nothing else, I'll post a lot of pictures, but if you happen to be in the area, if you happen to be able to go to GalaxyCon the weekend of March 24th, please do come, please come say hi. Everyone is tremendously nice. You will not be sorry. Well, this will air after that, but I'm sure people will be able to find photos and videos of the event. So I, I do encourage them to do that. And then 
Uh, again, by this will this will be a, a about a mid-April episode or so. I have to check my calendar. But uh, would you be? Could you share uh, the article, um, or the first article, I suppose that uh, that will be coming out from you at uh, DailyPlanetDC.com? Sure, and we can. <laughs> I assume edit all of the things that I just said that have been in the past. No, but, no, all, it's, uh, hey, it's all good. Um, actually, Anthony, thanks to you inviting me to be on the on the prior show. Um, our, our podcast was put on the front page of the daily planet, uh, dc.com website. And I had the honor of starting to talk to the editor in chief of the daily planet. And we, uh, we got to talking about Superman and some of the more interesting things about his history. And I will very soon become a contributing writer myself for the daily planet. So, um, there are very few things in life that are much cooler than actually growing up to be a reporter for the daily planet. And the, uh, the first series that I will be doing is the secret Spanish history of Superman. No surprise considering the the topic of, of this episode, but there are a great many contributors, including, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and, um, an entire, uh, plethora of amazing Spanish translation Superman comic books and memorabilia that are just wonderful to look at. But you, in essence, over the course of, of these four articles that I'm, that I'm going to write, we'll see that Superman has been an amalgam of many cultures and the imaginations of people who have come from different parts of the world. And the reason that Superman is still universal and still resonates to so many people across the world is partially because he's been built and written and drawn and imagined by wonderful people. And some of them uh, have left this legacy. So I wanted to start by examining the, the secret Spanish history of Superman. That's fantastic. So I, I look forward to that and I hope the audience will check that out. And again, like I said, if you haven't listened to Daniel's appearance on my other podcast, Digging for Kryptonite, I really encourage you to check it out as one of our first episodes of 2023. Uh, it's called Wearing the Cape and is available on all, all major podcast platforms. And the last thing I'll say before we sign off here is, uh, you know, I I didn't have you on for this episode b- because of your your heritage and background. You know, we started uh, talking fairly recently. I already had a lot of these episodes tagged to people. Uh, but then, of course, I found out about what a big fan of Adventures of Superman you are. And so when, when we ended that last recording, I was like, you know, if anything opens up in these season one recordings, of course, you'll be top mm-hmm. of mind. And that's exactly what happened. Something shifted around. So it just sort of it was just serendipity that this episode happened to be the one that that opened up and we were able to have you on. And it worked out perfectly. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I thought the exact uh, the exact same. Like sometimes fate just says, well, this will be perfect. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's nothing to do but say yes. And, you know, let's let's talk to a friend about Superman and let's have an uh, incredible time. Absolutely. Well, this was this was a blast. Uh, I look forward to the next time you and I could talk. I thank you uh, for participating. Audience, thank you so much. I always appreciate it. Make sure you come back in two weeks. Next time, it's Double Trouble. Uh, we'll have returning guest Rich Roney. Uh, so make sure you come back for that. Adventures await. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.